<clears throat> Can you take this? Just take that. I'm going to use this. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's good work. Good time of worship. Amen. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Now, if you're asking yourself why I'm preaching on Psalm 11, it will become apparent as we proceed. Um, Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord put I my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee is a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright, or as some versions say, the upright behold his countenance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a righteous Lord. We thank you that your throne is settled in heaven forever. We thank you that you reign over all. And I thank you, Lord, for everyone here today. That I thank you that they are here by your choosing to hear this word today because you have a message for each one here. We pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, your gracious spirit, your counseling spirit, your teaching spirit to be present, to open our hearts and minds to what you are saying to your church today through your word. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. By the way, I'm reading from the new uh, King James, in case yours is a little different than mine. Some of you are NIV, which means nearly inspired. Some, uh, <laughs> some have ESV. I don't want to make fun of that one, but I, I've got a good line for that one, too. Uh, some may use King James. You may use the message. You may use whatever. Um, but I just want to let you know I'm reading from that. First thing I want to do is I want to give a little, a little outline of this psalm. Um, a little background, a little outline of this psalm, and then I want to apply some of the teaching of the psalm to us today. So the bulk of my sermon is really what I would call application or lessons from this psalm, but by way of introduction, or you could say a short part one, I want to talk a little bit about the psalm itself. Now the psalm is in two parts. The first part of the psalm is verse one, verses one through three. The second part of the psalm is verses 4 through 7. And what we have is really a dialogue. In the first four verses, excuse me, the first three verses, we have, da we have David's counselors 
giving him advice. Now, I used to think that the first three verses were David's enemies speaking to him and taunting him, but the more that I've studied this passage, I believe that what's really happening is, is that David's counselors are advising him in a time of conflict, strife, and even civil war. Now, some scholars place this psalm at the time of Saul's attack on David before David took the throne. Others say it was probably written in light of Absalom's rebellion, where his own son rose up against him, tried to kill him and take the throne. Uh, some other scholars say, well, we can't really place where it is. We don't know. I tend to lead toward the second one. I tend to, tend to think that this psalm is placed at the time of Absalom's rebellion, uh, when David's son rose up against him, gathered uh, the people against David and against his own father. Um, in the first section, David's counselor said this to him, flee as a bird to the mountain. In other words, things are bad, let's get the heck out of here. That's what they're saying. Let's run, let's run. So this is a council of fear, right? A council of fear. Not a council of hope and not a council of victory, but a council of fear. David, things don't look so good right now for us. We're outnumbered. Absalom has stolen the heart of the people. Let's get out of here. And then they, 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 they say, um, they comment on here the wicked in verse 2. He says, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may secretly shoot at the upright in heart. <clears throat> in other words, the enemy is formidable. The enemy is ready. As a matter of fact, the enemy already has, they're not just preparing their schemes. They already have the bow drawn. They have the arrow on the string, and they are already aimed right at us, ready to let it go. Now, not only are they saying, let's flee, now is the time to flee. Before they let go of the arrow, they're saying they're right at us. And they say, they add to, to emphasize their counsel of fear. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What, this is, what they're really saying is, things are so bad right now, David, that there's nothing we can do. This is a counsel not just of fear, this is a counsel of despair a council of defeat. Things are so bad that there's nothing we can do. Um, the foundation, the word foundation here is critical. Some translations or some commentators would like to translate it pillars. Maybe your translation says that. The pillars of the earth. The idea is that which is supporting everything. The basis of everything. The foundation of society, if you will, is being overturned or is overturned. It, it's, it is destroyed, therefore there's nothing we can do. Hold your place here and look at Psalm 82. We see the same phrase occur. Psalm 82, are you there? Uh, 
Psalm 82, verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, or the Elohim, or the mighty ones. In other words, this is saying that God is standing in the midst of those who have authority. Particularly here, I believe, authority, what we call civil authority. God judges amongst the judges, if you will. He rules amongst the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Is this beginning to sound familiar to you? To anything like maybe today? See why this psalm so so relevant? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not understand, nor do they, they do not know, excuse me, nor do they understand they, and the, the they here is the, the mighty ones, the Elohim. They don't know what in the heck they're doing. They don't understand because they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. The, the civil order, the basis of society is being overturned is what, what these texts are saying. Everything that is good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. Darkness is called light. Light is called darkness. <clears throat> so things are so bad, David's counselors say. The, our enemy is so formidable. Our, our enemy is already poised to destroy us. It's time for us to flee. Well, what does David say in response? He says in verse 1, I will put my trust in the Lord. Let's hear it more than one amen. amen. Not I will put my trust in my horses or in my chariots or in my army or in my counselors. I will put my trust in the Lord. That is why after he is he is counseled to flee because the foundations are being destroyed or are destroyed. He says in verse, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, I'm not going to make my decision based upon the conditions around me, based upon the strength or readiness of my enemy. I'm going to make my decision based upon who the Lord God is. I will look to the Lord and make my decision. And so what does he say about God? He says three things about God, at least three, you could say more, but at least three things about God in this text. In other words, instead of fleeing, David's not going to flee. He's, he's saying, no, because the Lord is in heaven, he's on his throne, because he sees all that is going on, therefore he's not fleeing. And what does he say about God? He says, God is sovereign. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, the throne here emphasizes God's rulership, or that God is governing the world. Even though we see chaos all around us, although we see enemies all around us, it doesn't mean God is not still sovereign. God is still in control. He's still on his throne. 
hasn't fallen off his throne. He's not wringing his hands in fear. Right? Well, if God's in control, then why in the heck is everything falling apart? Good question, right? Well, the psalmist tells us, because the Lord, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. That's why. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But David looks away from his situation. He looks to, to his God, Jehovah, who, by the way, is our God. We call him the Father, usually. Right? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sovereign. He's on his throne. But also, he's omniscient. His eyes see. And I love this phrase, which seems odd to us, where it says, his eyes behold, in verse 4, his eyelids test the sons of men. What that's talking about, do you ever try to see something more clearly and you squint at it? Right? That's what he's saying. God not only sees, God is squinting like this. He sees it to clarify his vision, if you will, that he's razor focused on what's going on. He knows exactly what is going on. And so the chaos that is happening around David is a test of his faith and the faith of his counselors. So he tests the righteous. He knows what is going on. He knows what's going on with the righteous. He knows what is going on with the wicked. He, when they draw their bow in secret, guess what? It's not secret to God. He knows exactly what is going on at all times. Amen? But then he says God is righteous. He says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright, or his countenance beholds the upright. The better translation is the upright behold his countenance. In other words, God is going to do the right thing in this situation what David is saying. As dark as things may seem to us, David has decided not to take the advice of his counselors to flee because of who God is, that he is the sovereign Lord, that he is the omniscient Lord, and that he is the righteous Lord, that he will do the right thing. Amen? Amen. So let's talk for a moment about some lessons for us from this psalm. You know why I believe it is so timely. Now, the thing about the, let's talk about the advice that David got. David got true advice, but bad advice. Not true advice, but false advice, but true advice, but bad advice. So, what his counselor said, except for flee, was actually true. And the first thing they point out is, is the wicked, the opposition. And what we learned when we study scripture is that the wicked hate the righteous. It is not just that David had enemies, but anyone who is righteous has enemies. God's people have enemies. And if you're one of God's people, guess what that means? You have enemies. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, no, I'm such a nice guy. Everybody loves me. <laughs> Right? Everybody loves me. Well, first of all, let me say this. You have spiritual enemies that hate you and will attempt to do everything in their power to draw you away from Christ. 
everything. And if you think Satan and his demons are not formidable, then you are a, a babe in the faith. Because the power of the enemy is real, and it is strong, and it is formidable. Okay? That's why David looked to the Lord. He didn't look to his resources. He looked to the Lord's resources. Okay? So we have spiritual enemies. And we all say, yeah, we know that, Ephesians 6, right? We have spiritual enemies, everybody nods. But we forget that those spiritual enemies animate people so that we have real enemies. We have real enemies. People that don't like us. And they don't like us for no other reason that we are, is that we are righteous and they are not. Um, look at, look at uh, 1 John 3 for a moment. We're going to look at a couple passages. I won't try to jump too much. But I want you to see this. I know for some of you, this is a, a, just a novel idea. That someone would actually dislike you. In John, 1 John chapter 3, it says this. In this, verse 10, 1 John 3, verse 10, in this, for this, excuse me, I'll get it right. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, do not be surprised, do not be shocked, my brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. So in Cain's case, it was envy for his brother's righteousness. John chapter 3. If you turn there, what we see is Jesus. John 3 is, if I say John 3, most people think immediately of John 3, 16, right? That's the verse, for God so loved the world, right? But we read John 3, 16, and then we stop reading. Well, starting at 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yay, good news, amen? amen. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen? Good news. We like that. Cheer, cheer. He who believes in him is not condemned. Good stuff. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Eh, I'm not sure about that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why doesn't he believe? And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. They loved darkness. They loved sin. They loved perversion rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. That his deeds may be, hates light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. In other words, he hates his sin being exposed for sin. He refuses to repent and therefore he hates the source of the light. 
Remember that verse where Jesus says, you are the light of the world? Uh-oh. If you're light, you're going to be hated. Because evil men hate the light. But he who does the truth, verse 21, comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, they have been done in God. John 7, verse 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus was hated because he spoke the truth regarding man's moral condition. Jesus called a spade a spade. He called sin, sin. And, by, and because he did that, he was hated by those who hated the light, those who did not want to be exposed, those who did not want to repent. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples here, and, and, and as well to us, via them, if you will. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The servant is not above his master. In the, in, in the relationship between the Christian and Jesus who is the servant? I am. Say, I am. I am a servant. Got it. Who is the master? Say, Jesus is my master. Okay, let me ask you this. What did they do to Jesus? <coughs> Excuse me. What did they do? You mean they didn't give him a crown and they didn't give him a throne and they didn't throw parties for him? Hmm. Gee. Well, guess what? The servant is not above his master. And if we think that we're going to be loved because we're whatever, we're nice, then we are saying that we are above Jesus. We're saying we're the master. And we're not. We're the disciple. The disciple is like his master. How many times have you prayed, Lord, I want to be like you? <laughs> I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Do we know what we're saying? Do we really understand what that means? I mean, read the Gospels. Look what happened. Look how Jesus was attacked. How he was, his words were distorted by his enemies. How he was slandered. How he was betrayed. And then it, we talk about his crucifixion because of the physical suffering involved, but all the other things involved, the shame, the reproach, the rejection. Why? He was without sin. It was because he was light. And those who love darkness hate the light. I think for a long time, we, we, the church, have been kidding ourselves about 
the animosity that the unregenerate have for the saved. Because we've been fortunate to grow up in a culture which has been permeated by Christianity. And until recently, even though people may have been inwardly hostile, the socially acceptable thing to do was, was to t- at least tolerate Christians. But that is quickly changing. Quickly changing. We are living in the midst of a revolution. Some people say a revolution's coming. It, it's already come. Okay. The civil war isn't coming. The civil war is here. It's just at this point, it's in the form of words. And the next step is going to be in the form of a literal war. We are in a time where the foundations are being destroyed. There's no question about it. And the hostility of the wicked toward the righteous will become more and more manifest, more and more socially acceptable. The other day, I heard a commentator on, I think it was MSNBC or CNN, one of those uh, fake news sites. And they said, this person said, the problem in America is Christian nationalism. Now, the person could have said nationalism, maybe even white nationalism, because we know white people are all bad. But no, it's Christians. Christians are the problem. This kind of rhetoric coming out of the academy and out of the media is becoming more and more common, more and more acceptable. We are seeing churches which are now being attacked. We are seeing pro-life centers which are now being graffitied and, and burnt. And we hear no hue and cry from our government. No denunciation for this. It's becoming socially acceptable. And so we will see, as things move in this direction, assuming they move in this direction, we will see the reality of the hatred that the Bible talks about, the hatred of the the wicked for the righteous. In our day, this hatred manifests itself in the media, in the academy, even in elements of our own government. Do you know that if you are a a patriotic conservative, and especially if you're a Christian and you're white, you are probably on a terror watch list? Did you know that? Because according to the DOJ, we, white Christians, are the real danger to America. Let me say this, I'm almost 70. I've seen a lot of chaos. I lived through the 60s, which is really the social revolution, the moral revolution. I lived through it. But this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt that my government is against me. Now, I thought for a long time my government's stupid. I thought my government's corrupt. I thought a lot of bad things about the government because it's true. But the feeling today is different. The sense today is these are not just stupid people. These are corrupt people, and these are hateful people. And they are not looking out for me. They're looking at me, but they're not looking out for me. We are not on the same team. Okay, you understand? They have the bow drawn. And they have the arrow aimed. It's a very disconcerting feeling. But if you came here this morning thinking the government is your friend, you have been deluded. The government is not your friend. Not now it's not. 
because it is morally corrupt, it is religiously pagan, and therefore it is... Do you know what would happen if Jesus walked into Congress? (laughs) I'm serious. Think Think he'd get a standing ovation? So when David's advisors said, hey, the, the, our enemy's ready, they're formidable, he, this is true advice. This is really true. We're told in Proverbs that, that the, the, the bloodthirsty hate the righteous. There are people that hate us, and they're even in our government, they are in different organizations, they are in the academy, and they're becoming more and more emboldened to speak what they've all, all, always, already, and always have thought. That we are the enemy. The second thing that they pointed out, that Constance pointed out, was the foundations were overturned. In other words, things were so bad that it was a, a reversal of the moral order. Does this not sound familiar to you? When we say, when I'm telling you things are bad, I'm not saying we have a little problem. I'm saying the foundations are overturned. I mean, we're living in a time when we are supposed to pursue justice, but it's really injustice in the name of social justice. It's really in the name of Marxism and redistribution of wealth. We're living in a day when to to be an anti-racist really means you're a racist. Because to be an anti-racist means white people are evil. Now in my day, when I was really little, when I was born, a lot of people thought that black people were evil. Why? Well, because they're black, the color of their skin. Well, we've, we've, we've learned. It's not true. But it's not parody now. It's not like, oh, we're all, we're all equal, equal opportunity. You know. Oh, no, if, now it's flipped. If you're white, you're evil. Right? It's called white guilt. So in other words, we're still judging people on the basis of their skin color. That's not anti-racism. That is racism pointed at a different group. So it used to be blacks. Now it's whites. Maybe we'll do Latinos later. We can always hate the Asians because they don't say anything. They just get straight A's and everything. Um, you know, I mean, they just succeed. I mean, if, if, if we're going to be anti-racist, that means we don't demonize any, anyone and any people group based upon the color of their skin. Now, you can go through history and you can see all the evils that white people have done, and, and this is part of the project. But we can go through the history and see what black people have done, what Indians have done, what Asians have done. Every, every race, every ethnicity has done horrid things. Now, does that excuse evil? No. The point is that evil is not reserved for particular groups. It permeates all of mankind all, all ethnicities, all races, all colors. Amen. For we are all guilty before God. Amen. I mean, we're being told today to ignore biology in the, in the name of identity. I mean, we, we are being told today that, that, in fact, little boys are not boys and little girls are not girls. 
that we can just ignore biology as if it doesn't exist. And that we can mutilate these children to change their, their identity, their gender. If that is not destroying the foundations, I don't know what is. If we can't say what a woman is, if we cannot tell the difference between a boy or a girl, then truly the foundations are being destroyed. You know, in some schools now, they're, they're saying that two plus two is four is not true. That we can't say dogmatically it's true because that is racist. Okay, what do you say? The foundations are being destroyed. Logic is racist, reason is racist, math is racist, science is racist. Go down the list. So now race is being used as a wedge and a way to reject reason itself. Now, David's counselors said true things. Things were bad then, things are bad now. But some of their advice was bad advice. And that is when he told, when they told David to flee. When they said, let's get out of here. This is a council of despair. It's a council of defeat, if you will. It is saying God's enemies are greater than God. But God is greater than his enemies. Amen? Amen. We have many counselors like this today. And many reasons are given to the church to not resist the evil around them. And there's different arguments that are used. Some people say, you know, the pulpit shouldn't talk about politics or talk about race or talk about gender. Anything remotely political, we shouldn't do that. Um, remember, God's kingdom is not of this world. Remember, heaven's your home, not the earth. Remember, evangelism and not culture, that's our mission. And I gave you a list of many, many more things. All of this is bad advice. The church of Jesus Christ, and that means you if you're a believer, you were called to be salt and light. The function of salt was to halt corruption. They would take salt, big hunks of salt, and they would literally put it on the meat. They would, they would push it into the meat. They wanted to go deep into the meat so the meat wouldn't get rotten. Or they'd have barrels of, of salt and fluid water, and they would put the meat in so it would be pickled, if you will, Pickled. So, so the salt would seep into it, the very, the very middle of it, so it would not rot. So the salt is the halt of corruption. The, what does the light do? The light exposes darkness, right? Exposes air. It exposes evil. Jesus said that to his church. He said he was the light of the world, but then he looked at his church and said, you are the light of the world. The kingdom thing is a big deal in the church. You can be pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pro-mill, whatever mill you want to be. I have my position. But the point I want to make about this, the kingdom discussion is this. Regardless of your position on the millennium, God is still sovereign. Amen. It doesn't alter that fact. God is sovereign now. I mean now. Amen. This moment in time. Okay? 
Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of God now, at this moment of time. It's not like in the end, in the end times when everything breaks out, all of a sudden, Jesus is going to jump on the throne. Oh, I better get control of this. No, now. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, because of his resurrection, that he's seated on the throne. And that he's going to sit on the throne until he defeats the very last enemy, which is death. And then he'll offer the kingdom up to God. Jesus Christ is now reigning with his Father. Therefore, we're told in Corinthians, to abound in the work of the Lord. What is that? Is it only evangelism? Is it only missions? Is it only being a pastor? No, it is every area of life lived out for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So that means if you're a doctor, you have a sacred calling. If you're a policeman, you have a sacred calling. If you're a politician and a judge, you have a sacred calling. A lawyer has a sacred calling. Engineers, salesmen, stay-at-home moms. I could go down the list. All of them have a sacred calling from God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The church has separated the secular and the sacred to such a degree that Christian things mean reading your Bible, going to church, tithing, and uh, maybe evangelism or, or supporting missions. That's it. Everything else is not Christian. So in other words, Jesus is the Lord, but he's a little bitty one. Okay? Little bitty Lord. You know, in, in, in the old days... Old Testament times, Roman times, people actually had little idols of their gods. Do you know that? And they'd carry them around. Or they'd have a little, everybody in Rome, they have little altars at home. Some candles, they have little, little idols. And they'd have a bunch of different gods because of, of uh, polytheism. Might as well cover them all, right? Just to be safe. And when the church was born, the Romans said, oh, Jesus is fine. You can put Jesus' statue in the pantheon. You can put Jesus on, your little, on the altar. But, can't be the biggest idol on the altar. And you certainly can't take down the other idols. And the early church was persecuted because they didn't, not because it said Jesus was Lord or a Lord, they were persecuted because it said Jesus was the Lord of lords. The Lord over all lords. The God of all gods. And this was unacceptable. And many Christians carry around a little Jesus in their mind. A little Jesus idol. And if you put it on the altar of their home, it'd be a little tiny bitty one. And the other idols would be there. The government's a big idol. Education's a big idol. Money's a big idol. Success is a, the pills would be big statues. Jesus, a little bitty one. Jesus Christ reigns now. Whether we see it, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we sing songs, and we call Jesus Lord, and we sing songs about him reigning and ruling, don't we? Brothers and sisters, do we believe this? 
Do we believe what we're professing when we say He is Lord now? That could be a whole sermon, or many. Amen? We're told that heaven is our, is our home, so don't worry about anything on the earth. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. Heaven is not our home. Heaven is our destiny. Listen to me. When the earth was created, and in Genesis, it goes into quite a bit of detail about how God forms everything on the different days and all this long process. And the culmination of that was the creation of Adam and Eve, right? The pinnacle of his creation was what we call man in the plural. He and she. That's the pinnacle of his creation. So when God created man, mankind, if earth wasn't their home, why did he put, why'd he put them on the earth? Why did he just put them in heaven? He put them on the earth with a commission, and he said that man was to cultivate, subdue, have dominion over, and to keep the garden. In other words, man was placed here. In other words, the creation, the world, was created for mankind as his home to cultivate and to guard from evil. So one of the things we do is we fight evil. We're supposed to do fight evil. That is a pre Mosaic command, that's a pre-Christian command. It's a sub-Christian command, and yet many Christians do not fight evil. We're not even up, up, up to the level of a sub-Christian mandate. We're told in Peter that the, there will be a, a great conflagration at the end. It said the heavens will melt and the earth will melt. Everything will be laid bare, or in some verses, everything will burn up. But he doesn't end there. He says, There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. Well, who's going to be on the earth? Nobody. We're all in heaven. Why do you do that? Well, because we're told repeatedly, the meek will inherit the earth. So God's people will be on the earth, but it will be a new earth. Some will be in heaven. I think we'll go back and forth. I think we're going to be like with our new bodies. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be awesome. But the point is, is that there's so many things that are said which are, which are either false or they're partly true, and they're misconstrued in such a way that the church is disarmed, that the church is encouraged to flee. They're consuls of despair, consuls of defeat. I can tell you this. That if a, a, a football team or a baseball team or a hockey team, I've been watching hockey lately because of the Stanley Cup, if they go on the field or the ice convinced they're going to lose, I can guarantee you they're probably going to lose. Right? Coaches don't go in the, go in the locker room and say, hey guys, we've got a game tonight. We're going to get creamed. Let's go out there and let's get creamed for the home team. No. Hey, guys, let's go out there. Let's fight because we're going to win. We're going to win. David believed he would win. 
Because David looked at who? God. He looked to the Lord. A few words about the Lord before we close. That's why I'm taking so long. So David's rebuttal is he doesn't look at his enemies and their strength. He looks at the Lord and his strength. He looks at God's sovereignty. Although the earth may be shaken, God's throne is secure in heaven. Let's hear an amen. Amen. No amount of earthly chaos and strife can alter God's throne. His throne cannot be shaken. He rules over all. And it is from this throne that order will be restored and the foundations repaired. It is God working in history which will salvage the situation. It is God intervening, if you will, on behalf of his people and his church. David says, God is omniscient. His eyes behold, verse 4. He sees what's going on. He's even squinting to see all the details, not only the details of the action, the details of the thoughts and the motives and the intents of the heart. Although the schemes of the wicked are done secretly to men, the Lord sees it all. He knows their hatred, he knows their schemes, he knows their very thoughts, and he will overrule it all. In truth, he is using the situations, the social upheaval, to test his people. And he's looking at them too to see if they will pass the test. Will they flee? Will they counsel despair? Will they be cowards? Or will they look to Jehovah and stand? That's the question. And how is the church doing? Are we passing the test? Are we cowering inside the church? Are we hiding our light under a bushel? Hate to make you feel guilty, but when's the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? I'll let let you answer that for yourself. The only thing I want to say is this, that if we are not part of the solution, we are part of the problem. David then looks, after looking at God's... Sovereignty and omniscience, he looks at God's righteousness. It says in verse 5, the Lord is righteous. Amen? The Lord is sovereign. Amen. The Lord is omniscient. Amen. The Lord is just and righteous. Amen. And because he hates, because he is righteous, he hates, hates evil and he hates those who are evildoers, those who, who delight in wickedness. And we're told in the word of God that he will punish the wicked for their sin. He will punish them for their haughty thoughts, their lying tongue, their shedding of innocent blood, their heart that devises wicked plans, their, their desire and eagerness to join evil, their perjury and deception, deceitfulness, their sowing of discord, and many more sins. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, or revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. This is the word of the Lord. God is righteous, and because he loves righteousness, therefore he will punish wickedness. 
Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul will hate, his soul hates. And upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. But I want to add in conclusion, because the Lord is righteous, he also loves righteousness. He doesn't just hate evil, he loves righteousness. And he will reward the righteous. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and the righteous, or the upright, will behold his countenance. And this reward for the righteous is summed up in what is called the beatific vision. That is, the righteous will behold the face of God and live. One author said, to behold the face of God is in itself impossible to mortals without dying. But when God reveals himself in love, then he makes his countenance bearable to the creature. And to enjoy this vision of God, softened by love, is the highest honor God in his mercy can confer on a man. It is the blessedness itself that is reserved for the upright. Amen? The beatific vision sums up all that is, all that brings joy and happiness and bliss is, is seeing God face to face, of knowing him as a man knows his friend, of knowing him no longer in part. A reward for enduring all the hatred the slander, the lies, the schemes of the wicked will be nothing less than blessed and eternal fellowship with God himself. Amen? Let's bow our heads and pray. As we bow our heads and pray, I'm going to remind you the Spirit of God is here. And the Spirit is probing your heart and your conscience. Where do you stand with God? Are you one of the wicked or one of the righteous? Therefore, how you answer that question will determine your destiny. Will you experience the beatific vision? Will you experience the fullness of joy and peace and love forever? Or will you experience the brimstone, the burning, the fire? Jesus Christ, the Son of God and very God, came to redeem the wicked. The Word of God tells us that Jesus died for us when we were enemies. That means we hated him. And maybe you came in here today hating God. Maybe you didn't know it. But the truth is, you do. And you've been resisting him. You're resisting his word even now. And I'm calling you to lay down your arms. Because God will win this battle. Every knee will bow. Every will confess that Jesus is Lord. It is only a question of whether you bow as a defeated enemy of God or whether you bow as an honorable friend.
and loyal subject. But every knee is going to bow. So I implore you at this moment to realize that today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that you can call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And the word of God says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Do it now. Call upon him now. Because today is the day of salvation. At some point, the day of salvation will end. There is no second chance. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. And to the saints, I want to say, take heart, our Lord reigns. And because you take heart, therefore, abound in the works of the Lord. Get to work. Do what is right. Speak what is right. Speak truth. Stand for the truth. Let your light shine and do not hide it under a bushel. Lord, I thank you for not just your great love, which is incomprehensible to me that you could love those of us who are so wicked and ungrateful. But you have done so in the offering of your son for us. But I thank you that you are righteous. And Lord, although it makes me tremble to meditate upon it, to think what evil really deserves and what evil will get, I thank you that every evil will be called to account. And every evil will be set right. As we see corruption around us, perversion around us, we call out to you, Lord, arise and judge the nations. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our heart's prayer today and always. Glorify thy name, Father, we pray. Amen.